Welcome to Curtain Jerks here on the Comedy Podcast Network. I'm Mark Warzeka. I'm Steve Sears. I'm Brecken L. And we are all comedians who live in Los Angeles. We're also professional wrestling fans, and we have a very special episode today. We are recording live on stage, live to tape, on stage. Yeah. In the historic Second City Hollywood Theater. We are on stage in the Second City Hollywood. We are just moments away from opening the doors to the theater, and we're holding here a very special screening of the new documentary, Memphis Heat, the true story of Memphis wrestling. Wrestling. I am excited for this. I'm very excited for this. This thing has awesome. gotten a tremendous amount of great press. It's been the talk of the wrestling world. It's been talk of wrestling websites and Everybody just loves this who's seen it so far, and we've got a sold-out theater here today. And after the sh- after the screening, we are going to be hosting a Q&A with Scott Bowden, who used to uh, be a, a manager in, in the Memphis Territory, and with Chad uh, Scheffler, who is also the director of Memphis Heat. I always think it's dangerous to open up Q&As because I imagine somebody's going to is going to ask Steve why he's such an idiot. <laughs> it's true, and it's really a shame to watch that person get their ass kicked. Yeah. That person being me. Because there's going to be beers watch. in here. There's going to be some serious beers. There's going to be beers in here and Memphis wrestling. Yeah. We've got questions from some of the Wrestling Observer message board members that we're going to be asking during the Q&A, and yes, indeed, we are going to take questions from the audience. Yes, yes, you, sir. They're not here yet, Steve. Yeah. No one's here. He's practicing. Yeah. Oh, yes, you in the back. <laughs> you, you getting ready? Did that in the front of the mirror for hours this morning. Ah, uh, yes, the gentleman with the fedora. <laughs> I, get, oh, I could almost guarantee there won't be any fedoras in here today. <laughs> what do you guys want to bet? This is, it's a, well, right now we are in an empty theater. We're at the empty theater because we're recording our intro. Well, after, the, uh, after the movie plays, we're going to record an outro. And we're gonna have our final thoughts on the entire piece. Who thinks there's gonna be a fedora? I don't, but no. I will. I would five to one that there's gonna be Confederate flag T-shirts. Okay, Confederate flag <laughs> T-shirts. Brett says no fedoras. Mark, what do you say? Fedora? No fedoras. No. What is this? 1945? Not even a wrestling? leather fedora. Uh, no. And how how do you feel about the Confederate flag T-shirts? Uh, there'll be some. No. <laughs> there'll be. I think there'll be some. That a ballsy move on Hollywood Boulevard. Definitely. A, a it's Halloween weekend yeah, it though, so Halloween. it'll blend right in. That's that's yeah, true. As that's we, true. All right. Well, when you hear us next, it will be the Q and A with Chad and Scott. We hope you and a full house of uh, a sold out theater, and uh, we'll have just watched the film all together. Um, so uh, we hope you enjoy the, this uh, Q and A. The Second City Hollywood, where we've just finished watching Memphis Heat, and we've got uh, special guests here with us. Actually, gentlemen, how about you introduce yourselves? Yeah. Uh, hey, I'm Chad Schaffler. I'm the director of Memphis Heat and one of the producers as well. <laughs> and I am Scott Bowden. I am the publisher of KentuckyFriedWrestling.com, a lifelong Memphis fan, and uh, also got to live my dream as a Memphis performer, as a bad guy wrestling heel. All right. well, welcome, welcome. Yeah, that's right. Thank you. Chad, how did this documentary come about, and how did you get involved in it? Uh, you know, it's kind of interesting. I was actually approached by a couple guys uh, locally, Sherman Wilmot and Ron Hall, and they were both um, 
had worked on a book, so they'd collected all this photography, tons and tons of great old black and white photography. They wanted to turn it into some sort of little TV show. I think they were thinking, kind of PBS, let's, let's do something with this. We don't have much money, let's see what happens. And, and uh, they didn't know me very well. So um, we, we wound up uh, taking it a little bit further and, uh, and probably driving them very in, insane. But, uh, but we were lucky, we got a lot of good response from wrestlers right away. And as soon as that started to happen, it just snowballed. So, uh, so yeah, that was, that was the beginning. Great. <laughs> and Scott, tell us a little bit about your history as part of Memphis wrestling. You were a referee and then a manager. Yeah, yeah. I uh, was a ref Well, actually, I started, as most guys do, uh, you start setting up the ring. It's like a rite of passage. Yeah. Uh, and then you start kind of hanging around the dressing room. And I think uh, referee Jerry Calhoun had just been fired or quit. They asked me to fill in, and I was really nervous about it. And Jerry Lawler pulled me aside and gave me a quick lesson in referee 101. He was <laughs> like, you know, just act like it's a real sporting event and get in there. If a guy's pulling his hair, he's like, get out of stop pulling the hair, and, and all that. So I did that for a while. And then uh, one night, um, I developed kind of a reputation as, uh, as a finished guy, a guy who could give uh, endings to the matches. And some of the boys had started taking a liking to me. And uh, Hot Stuff Eddie Gilbert uh, pulled me aside one night, and he said, we're going to turn you heel, kid. <laughs> and immediately I got, you know, just butterflies in my stomach. And we did a deal where uh, Lawler had Eddie pinned. And instead of counting three, I kicked Lawler in the back of the head, put Eddie on top, counted three real quick. And suddenly I was Eddie's manager, his stooge. And then, you, and then, and then going from there, had a run. Uh, and then had a run, run managing there. guys like Tommy Rich, uh, Doug Gilbert, yeah. Sid Vicious. Uh, and I like to take credit for the fact that I was in Jerry Lawler's corner. Uh, Jerry uh, ended up switching heel, and we formed an evil alliance. And we actually <laughs> ran the rock out of Memphis. And uh, it, it was funny. My friends ran into the rock at a gym here in Los Angeles a few years ago, and they said, hey, I heard, uh, heard Scott Bowden you, ran you out of Memphis. He said, "Yeah, and thank God that he did." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I think I think that, I think I think it turned all right. It turned yeah, out it okay out for the for kid. Him. Yeah, I think it worked out for him. We we try not to let Steve ask questions, but I, I could tell he has one. I got a good one. I all got right, a good Steve. One. Uh, Chad, when you said a lot of the wrestlers were excited about uh, approach for this project, was it because that the territories are so under kind of represented when it comes to these documentaries? I think that's a big part of it, and I, I think we kind of hit them at the right time. I think a lot of these guys are getting a little bit older, and it was an opportunity to to kind of leave that legacy. And, and make sure their story got heard because I think they really were worried it was not going to get heard. Yeah. Were any of the guys apprehensive about talking so openly about the wrestling business? Because in their era, the time period that most of these guys wrestled in that you interview, you didn't do what you do today. You didn't talk openly and expose the business. Right? Did anybody have a hard time doing it? You know, it's not really. It just kind of came naturally. Right. Um, you know, they, they opened up pretty easily. Um, Dundee did actually make a, a point to say, I would never have done this interview five years ago. But, you know, for whatever reason, this is what I see as my opportunity. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and tell it like it is. And, uh, and, but most of the older guys, it was almost like they didn't realize what we were talking about, and they just were kind of shooting the shit with me. And the <laughs> Scott, when you were involved in Memphis wrestling, was it still was the business still protected? Was it still bad guys and good guys don't drive in the same car together yeah. and that kind of stuff? Yeah, it really yeah. was. Uh, I mean, it, it was uh, it was funny. My my father was a firefighter, and he actually worked uh, when uh, you know you mentioned. Uh, Carl von Bronner, one of the one of the yeah. German wrestlers, he ended up on the Memphis Fire Department <laughs> after retiring. And he, so uh, uh, I'd been in the business for about two or three years, and uh, I played golf. I played a round of golf with him, 
And I kept trying to engage him in a conversation about the business, and he refused to talk about yeah. it. I mean, for years, <laughs> the, the old timers, it was like the mafia. You know, you, you know, once once you were in it, you were in it for life, and you didn't talk about it. Uh, and in the '90s, I was amazed. You know, that the crowds, especially when we went to small towns like Union City, Tennessee, these people believed at least while they were there with their heart and soul that what was going on was real. Yeah. And some, and, and actually, there was a guy who sat ringside in Memphis, and he would throw his boot into the ring. We called him the boot guy. <laughs> And, uh, I, you know, he would actually throw his boot at some of the wrestlers. And I went into a, at a, into a convenience store one night, and he was working behind the counter. And I didn't recognize him. And he was like, Scott, don't you know me? I was like, no. And he's like, I'm the boot guy. <laughs> and he's like, man, I love you. And I'm like, you spit on me and throw beer on me and throw your boot at me every Monday night. He goes, yeah, but I love you. <laughs> right. Uh, well, first of all, I just have to put it on record. I absolutely love Jackie Fargo now. I can sit back and listen to that guy talk uh, forever. He reminds me of my own grandfather. Uh, <laughs> just no, uh, no editor at all. Uh, so I have kind of a two-part question that's completely unrelated. Uh, so for Chad, like, how much of his interview were you actually able to use? Because it seems like a guy that doesn't have that kind of editing would be uh, – a real trip to sit and talk to for a while. He he was uh, actually pretty amazing to talk to. We wound up doing about a two-hour interview with him, mm -hmm. which was about an hour and forty-five minutes more than he wanted to be there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so so that was uh, pretty pretty lucky. We just kind of kept him there, kept him there, kept him there. Um, but it was it was really casual and laid back mm -hmm. as far as he was really actually nice. Once we got him go going and rolling. He uh, was great. He, he seemed to be in like a gym or something. Does he run a wrestling school or anything like that or what? It was some sort of uh, it was some sort of boxing gym that a friend of his owned or knew. It was like ten miles from his house. So, mm -hmm. but uh, but no, he is he's retired and and that's where he chose to meet us. It was in very rural <laughs> North Carolina. Tough. It was really the, in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, he was tough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was super. Yeah. That guy was tough. And uh, Scott, you know, the, a lot of, they had talked, and I'm, I've always been super interested in, and I read a ton of wrestling autobiographies and stuff, and I've always been super interested in the, uh, them telling stories of things that happen on the road and behind the scenes and stuff like that. Do you have any great memory of something that happened to you either on the road or behind the scenes that uh, you'd like to share? Um, you know, the, the Saturday morning wrestling show was, was probably uh, the highlight. I mean, it was, it was so unpredictable. And, and I've talked to some of the wrestlers who worked in the 80s, uh, and it was pretty much done the same way. You you kind of got a TV, you got a loose TV format right before you were getting ready to go out. You really you literally did not know what you were gonna say mm -hmm. until about 30 minutes before you went on the show. Yeah. Um, but that that made the show really cutting edge, really dangerous. We didn't even know what was gonna happen. You heard Bill Dundee say, you know, heck to us it was real. Mm -hmm. And the way it was, we were really reacting off each other. Uh, you know, you didn't really know what was going to happen. And when you were on the road, I mean, you were constantly, like, uh, shooting fireworks uh, at, at each other, throwing chili dogs at each other, really trying to run each other off the road is what we were trying to do. And that was how you passed the time. You know, I would make a, a seven-hour drive to Louisville, Kentucky, and drive back and get a $50 payoff. I mean, it was it was an expensive hobby for me, basically, <laughs> in, in, in the 90s. We got some That's questions great. from yeah. some folks on the Wrestling Observer message boards. One is from Lord Peepness. And uh, his question is, is for, for Chad, was it tough to locate any of the interview subjects, and did any of them make life difficult during the interview process? 
Uh, we did we did struggle finding a few guys. Fortunately, Billy Worley, one of the producers, uh, was incredibly tenacious and would stay on the phone, and then I would stay on him. And so we wound up finding people. Uh, Rocky Johnson was the hardest. He, oh, yeah. We finally, and he ironically lives about an hour and a half out of Memphis. Um, he's down in Florida a lot, but but we finally got a hold of him and uh, and kind of talked him into meeting us after like having to go meet him a couple times and his whole thing. Um, but uh, the only one, I wouldn't say anybody made it particularly hard on us as far as the interview goes. Probably uh, Fargo. You know, Fargo, just because he was, you know, he's a surly man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, at the end of, like, at the end of the interview, we were like, oh, you got to do the Fargo strut for us. So we get him doing, doing his strut, which we have him doing it. And, uh, and he's like, well, I can't do it without throwing a punch first. I got to throw a punch <laughs> so, and, I'm, and so I'm the punch subject. And I, you know, I don't know how to take a fake punch. And so, so, so throw, I'm sitting there. Yeah. Fake yeah. 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 I but I wasn't that. sure. I'm sitting there like, is he going to hit me? And, and so I'm kind of like backing away from you can see it on the film. He, he kind of just does a little fake punch and then does his strut. But it was it was very, uh, I was pretty intimidated at that point. So. <laughs> Another question from Henry Aaron. He says, one of the most well-received elements of the DVD so far has been the generous amount of extras included with the documentary. But was there anything else you wish have, you could have included in the final cut? And I want to throw, throw in there real quickly. I, I agree with this premise here I think the extras on the DVD are fantastic there's a lot of extra footage of interviews extra footage of Memphis wrestling a great featurette about a former wrestler almost killing Jerry Lawler with a straight razor but (laughs) anything else you wish you could have included that didn't make it in you know not so much on the DVD itself I will say in the in the film really would have liked to have included the Galento story the Mario Galento story it's a crazy story about him you know coming in the ring and with a straight razor and all this stuff and it's a it's a real thing everybody winds up in jail um, <laughs> and uh, it's a really interesting great story and we had it from like six different perspectives all these different people talked about this incident and uh, there was never any footage we could never find anything uh. and so we couldn't make it work in the context of the film and then on top of that it was like there's no telling it and you know, 60 seconds, it needed five, six, seven minutes to, yeah. to play out. And we were really trying to condense the film and just stay focused. Um, but yeah, that was the one story as far as one of my favorites that we didn't keep in the actual cut. Uh, you know, I would have loved to have had some of the actual Kaufman footage from, from Letterman. And we, we had the footage, we played with it in the cut, and then we talked to NBC. And we, know, we no longer were going to use that footage. <laughs> they said, it will cost you this much. Yeah, yeah. And we said, thank you for your time. <laughs> when you guys were interviewing people, when you're putting the movie together, like, did you know going in, all right, we want to we wanna talk about the Andy Kaufman stuff. We want that in the movie. We want the Jerry Lawler, Terry Funk, uh, uh, empty arena match in the movie. We, you wanted certain things. Or was it more like you just interviewed guys and saw what they what came up, what most of them were talking about, and shaped it that way? Yeah, much more the latter. We okay. we kind of had a, a good a good round of questions. Jimmy Hart was our first interview, so we really got a great baseline for the mm-hmm. for the film right with him because he talked forever. We talked for three hours, <laughs> or something. and uh, and um, so that was kind of we started there, and then as we got into and heard stories from him, we would pick up from that and ask some other guys about some of the stuff we were hearing from him. And it just kinda, we kind of just cross-referenced our questions and kind of developed. I'd done a lot of research as far as the timeline and some of the key things we knew we had to cover. You know? uh, well, last uh, question from a Wrestling Observer message board. Chim55 asks, why did the movie finish where it did? It ends about, it ends right as Vince McMahon is about to launch WrestleMania. Right? Yeah, and I think that's because that was 
that was where there was the changing of the guard. That was the shift, I think. And so to me, that that was the kind of cleanest break because it did continue in Memphis for a while and it was very successful, you know, for a while. But that seemed to be that kind of moment of okay. This is when everything in the country was changing and Memphis was getting affected by it as well and just kind of made sense as a, as a farewell, if you will. So. And the end result of that is sort of like the, fo- the film focuses on the glory days of Memphis, I guess, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, is yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're going to take some questions from the audience. Uh, anybody have a question for Scott or Chad? Go ahead and raise your hand and I shall repeat it onto the podcast. Over oh, yes. Yeah. Okay, the question's about Lance Russell, and he's not interviewed as part of the film. Did you try to get him, and if so, why was it unsuccessful? We did. We actually talked to him a number of times, and we just never could coordinate getting down to Florida and because that's where he lives. It was just it became kind of a logistical issue, and we actually felt like we had enough footage of him actually, you know, on the show that we could kind of use that to represent represent him mm-hmm. but uh, but we've sent you know he saw that came up for a screening at the Orpheum and we actually after the fact he was like oh we should have made that work and I was like yeah. <laughs> you're killing me <laughs> you, you threw you flour to, on him yeah. <laughs> yeah. you need to work with Lance as well my, my very first interview as a heel was with Lance Russell and it was it was such it was such a thrill I mean you know I'd grown up watching Lance banana nose as Jerry Lawler liked to refer to him and I just knew I I had a I had a kind of a confidence that Lance was going to carry me through it and and again I really didn't know actually the plan was they wanted me to I kicked Lawler in the back of the head and took this payoff and all this and they actually wanted me to go out and apologize and the the deal was that they were going to switch me back to a referee about a month down the road well, I had always dreamed of being a heel, mm-hmm. and it was live TV, so I figured, well, what can they do? So I went out there and I said, you know what, Lance Russell, I was so tired of Jerry Lawler pushing me around, ignoring all the rules. I stumped him like the cockroach that he was, and I don't regret it. And, you know, and Lance is like, oh, no, I can't believe you. I, you know, you're just a disgrace. I'm like, oh, okay, Dad. Okay, Dad. <laughs> and Lance came up to me afterward. He was like, boy, that dad stuff, that was great, you know. <laughs> and, and I look over, and Jerry Lawler's, like, you know, doing his fingers, like, come over here. And he's like, all right, that was pretty good what you did out there, kid, but. Next time, do what I tell you to say. <laughs> All right. You know, one thing I think is just kind of interesting trivia is like the uh, Lance Russell and Dave Brown, who were uh, the announcers, the broadcasters of the show, they also like. That wasn't all they did in the area. Like, Lance Russell really was the program director for the station. Dave Brown was, like, famous as being the local weatherman, right? Absolutely. And then they would host the wrestling show. Yeah, and Dave Brown still is, like, the number one weather guy in the city. He's huge. He's still doing it. I mean, he's, he's like, one of the most famous people in Memphis, for sure. And how he kept his credibility after doing Memphis wrestling, I'll never know. But that's the thing about, you know, you asked about some some funny unplanned Uh incidents. Dave was always a little bit more cautious and a little bit more careful than Lance because mm-hmm. because of his reputation, because yeah. of his standing in the community and being the number one weatherman in the in the city. And I was told we had a promoter named Randy Hales, who actually had kind of a speech impediment. And so I I was supposed to, I was instructed to go out there and, and and accuse him of being the retarded son of promoter Eddie Marlin. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the only way that he had a position. Uh, because he was Eddie Marlin's son. And so I said the word retarded, and Dave cuts me off, and he goes, hey, don't say that word. And I'm thinking Dave's working with me. Uh-huh. And I'm like, oh, what? What, what, Dave? You mean retard? 
Does that word bother you, Dave? Well, this whole audience is a bunch of retards. And, and Dave's like, I'm not kidding you. You're about to get thrown off the air. And I'm like, oh, well, you know, Randy Hales is from Jonesboro, and the only reason nobody ever noticed he was retarded because everybody in Jonesboro is retarded. And I just keep using it over and over again, and Dave is about to have a heart attack. And finally, Randy comes out there and jumps on me. We go to the back, and Dave Brown, who I've watched since my, you know, since I could walk, Dave Brown, who I, you know, it just seems like he's like Ward Cleaver. Uh-huh. He pulls me aside. And he goes, hey, what the fuck was that all about? (laughs) And I'm like, Dave Brown just cursed. (laughs) And I swear, I nearly burst into tears. I was so upset that I had upset Dave Brown. And I'm like, I'm so sorry, Dave. I thought you were working with me. He goes, oh, (laughs) I think I saw another hand over here somewhere, maybe. Oh, everybody want to know about Lance Russell? Any other uh, questions from our audience? Yeah, yeah, right there. Is yeah. there any reason why there was like nothing involving the fabulous ones? Because that was like another like big stars in that early '80s period. Okay, the questions about the fabulous ones, and they're not really included in the documentary. I know from having watched the extras already that they are in the they are in the extras, but uh, how come they're not a bigger part of the documentary? Is the question. You know, I uh, I think it was just a time thing. They were we were we kind of had to choose our battles of what we could really work in there. Um, we got them. We felt like we got them in as far as some of the B-roll footage. We were tried to pull them in, and uh, it got a little political trying to show as much as we could of everybody. But uh, mm-hmm. you know, Fargo actually did not talk about it th- the Fabs that much too. It was kind of well, uh, yeah. And th- the deal with that was uh, business was down. I think in, in in the fall of '82, and Jerry Jarrett was thinking, gosh, I wish I could create another Jackie Fargo. And basically it was you know, it was just a gimmick. He was trying to recreate the magic of Jackie and Roughhouse Fargo and he gave and he went to Jackie, who was very protective of his image. Jackie I don't think was crazy about doing it. Uh, but he, he basically lent his name and gave his permission for these guys to take on the the same the same gimmick uh, that he and his so-called brother did, uh, and they had the top hats and and they had the flashy videos, and the thing but the thing about the fabulous ones that a lot of people don't realize yeah they set the territory on fire and they enabled Memphis you could have Jerry Lawler on one card on a Friday night and the fabulous ones headlining another, and you know it, it drew a lot of money you could you could you could have two shows on the same night but really their run only lasted about a year and a half. I mean, it was a you know it, it was a great time, but people romanticize it as like they had this huge impact on the territory, and it did as far as I mean, my 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 friends and I we thought they were so cool, mm-hmm. you know, and and then but suddenly my sister and her friends are coming over and watching wrestling, so it did open uh, up the audience, uh, the demographic. I think it changed. Uh, they drew a lot more teenage girls, and these these guys became like rock stars, you know. Memphis was very innovative. They they were the first ones to start doing uh, rock. MTV style music videos with like stories, you know, with these guys getting into their Corvettes and (laughs) stopping on the streets and and women just hopping in the car, you know, and things like that. And then suddenly every territory was doing it. And when Vince McMahon went national and he, you know, he developed kind of a real camp product, so much of that was lifted from Memphis. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the Fabs did have a huge impact, but it really didn't last too long. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it wasn't sustained like, like Lawler's incredible run. Well, I think I saw another hand somewhere. Put your hand down, Steve. Jesus. The question is about the music in the film and um, and where it came from, and uh, the it was great. Well, and music was such an important part of the wrestling scene that we also realized it was going to be had to be a big part of the of the film. Um, we were really lucky to get to work with Doug Easley, who is uh, kind of a local 
producer Andy guy has been involved with a lot of a lot of really great uh, great bands. I think he's recorded the White Stripes and Pavement and a bunch of these guys. And uh, and so he came on board to do the music. Um, we'd also made sure to keep it with Memphis bands, so we used a band called River City, Tan- uh, yeah, River City Tan Lines. Um, a couple tracks that they did, as well as uh, as well as Viva the American Death Ray, who are out of New York now, but they actually started in Memphis and are kind of a you know they have deep roots in Memphis. I think all the band except one guy's a Memphian or something. Um, so we really wanted to keep it local. That was actually kind of an important side, and then. Uh, Working with Doug and, and his guys, because it was a guy named Sean Faust and Adam Woodard as well. They all worked together. They brought in a bunch of great local guys. So we were really lucky to get those guys involved. And what about all the footage? There's a tremendous amount of footage yeah, of old yeah. matches, of photos of newspaper clippings, all that kind of stuff. It was like really a tremendous amount that I think really helped to bring the whole documentary to life. What was it like? finding and gathering and going through all that stuff. Well, we started the project with a great base as far as stills go because Sherman and Ron had collected all these uh, these beautiful black and white photos, and they also had a good bit of, of the newspaper articles. As we, you know, delved into it further, obviously, uh, myself and Billy Worley and Pritchard, our editor, would all kind of find pieces. Oh, we need this stuff, we need this. So we, you know, it was it was just hidden anywhere we could. A lot of, a lot of stuff that could be found for free. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And then as far as the footage goes, um, we were we were really lucky um, to find some incredible Super 8 footage early on in the process. Total random occurrence. My brother works with a lady whose dad was Mario Galento, and she and so she was like, "Oh, you, you're doing this movie? Wow! You know, we have all these old home movies." And I was like, "Really? Because everybody we've talked to doesn't have. Nobody has them." Um, they all say, I used to have it, but there was a fire. That's, I've heard that like, <laughs> oh, really? I've honestly, I've heard that probably four or five different times. And uh, The strangest thing to me is like how, how awesome all this stuff, WWE does not like, I mean, they seem to own all the footage from all the territories now. They don't own anything from Memphis and, or have they tried to or anything like that? Um, actually, the, the rights are really up in the air. Uh-huh. Uh, nobody really knows who owns it. Uh, mm-hmm. There have been some different lawsuits. Uh, and basically, you know, uh, Jerry Jarrett, I can't believe, you know, that Jarrett and Lawler, because it was such a phenomenon uh, in Memphis. Uh, I mean, the term Monday Night Wrestling was just in, in the everyday vernacular. Like, you know, if me and my friends were, were getting, at, at, you know, at my house and we got into a fight and things were getting out of hand, my dad would go, hey, calm down, this ain't Monday Night Wrestling. <laughs> And, you know, it was the highest rated show, including primetime, in 1982, right behind Dallas and Dynasty. I mean, it it was such an an incredible force. Uh, But they didn't foresee, um, back then, every promotion, except for the WWF, they taped over uh, the shows to save money as a cost-cutting measure. They didn't see the value in uh and videotapes and and, and dvd collections and things like that they just and jerry jarrett's like i could have made you know three times as much money selling videotapes as tickets but i just didn't i just didn't they see it envision that there would be a market no. for that one no day. and and, yeah. and really humbly you know they were always on the road and they were trying to think of like the next the next car that they were going to book and what to do on tv saturday uh they didn't really realize just how special uh, what it was they were doing. They didn't really realize how unique uh, the Memphis territory was. 
and and they didn't understand that the it was kind of had a cult following around the world. They didn't know, mm-hmm. you know. And there was really not a lot of merchandise you could buy. You know, as kids, we used to like we wanted pictures, we wanted uh, T-shirts and stuff like that. And it was a, and except for Lawler saw the big picture. <laughs> you know, Lawler Lawler was for Lawler had TV like uh, T-shirts, uh, <laughs> records, uh, everything. But Lawler was like one of the few guys who saw the big picture of that. Any other audience questions? Uh, yeah, go ahead. Do you happen to know the status of the, the South Coliseum? Because I've been hearing talk they're going to tear it down, that and the Bear The question is about the Mid-South Coliseum, and is it going to be torn down, do we know? I do not know. I would be shocked if it does not get torn down. I think it, it's, it's a political thing, and it's all about bonds and all that stuff. Uh, there's been a definite movement um, locally to try to preserve it, to try to keep it around. There's been uh, even that, that idea bandied about of making it into a wrestling hall of fame <laughs> slash museum kind yeah, of thing. Really? Yeah, really. Um, awesome. I think it's too much space. I don't know what you Actually, I have to be honest with you. I wrote a story because I uh, the Coliseum was in the news about it uh, about it being torn down. I wrote a, an onion style story on my website <laughs> saying that Lawler and Donald Trump were going to buy it and turn it into a wrestling museum <laughs> slash deli. Yeah. <laughs> and the best part about it is there'll be plenty of seating. <laughs> and and I just assumed that people would pick up on the fact that this was a joke. And Jerry Lawler called me, and he's like, hey, Channel 13 just called me. They want to know why I'm buying the South Coliseum with Donald Trump. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> I was like, man, read this story, because it's saying that the mayor wants to turn it into Maywood. He wants to recreate Maywood, the beach within reach, this man-made beach. Uh, but the whole thing was ridiculous, so I, I, I take credit for that one. Well, any last audience questions? We may have got them all. Okay, cool. Uh, I, Chad, I've got a question. Oh, boy. Fuck. Oh <laughs> Watching this and sort of getting to see the territories kind of illuminated in this way, is, were there any documentaries that sort of stood out in your mind that sort of were that surprising? or does, It can be wrestling-related or otherwise. I'm just kind of wondering where you were coming from when you were working on it. There were a couple of documentaries that I, I looked at, not as a model, but as something that I kind of felt like there were some, some similarities to the types of materials we had and were going to be collecting in the interviews. And that was, uh, you know, uh, Dogtown and Z-Boys was, was one that really came up, um, as well as the kids stayed in the pic- stays in the picture. Um, but that was, we also had this kind of whole design element. We played with some, and, and we didn't really flesh it out fully. But, uh, but those were two movies, I thought, from a storytelling perspective that I, I definitely looked at. So. Was anything brought to the table when it was first pitched to you? Because they'd, you'd said that it was pitched as almost a PBS-style project. Was there anything like that that they were trying to say, like Ken Burns or anything like no, that? No, we were really wide open about it. I mean, they were all, we were very, very collaborative, and it was one of those things where I think uh, we all just wanted to see you know, we were going to let it go in whatever direction it needed to go into. Um, and I, there was no real commitment, yeah, that it has to be Ken Burns. I think at first there was more of a time limit, like, okay, because we, A, we want to do it quickly. They, and mm-hmm. they wanted to do it, like, you know, really quick. And then I think originally it was like, well, we should do it for 30 minutes or 60 minutes so that we can get it on, on PBS. And then it, was, it just kind of snowballed. And when you have 50 hours of interview footage and a couple hundred hours of B-roll, you know, it's hard to do that in 60 yeah, minutes. Yeah. I'm glad that it did. <laughs> yeah. You know, one thing I thought that really fascinating watching the documentary is a lot of these guys now are, you know, they're they're in their 70s, maybe a little older than that, some of them. But for, for most of these guys, if not all of them, you can still see now why and how they were so charismatic and, and, and why they drew. Kind of like what Brett yeah, was saying yeah. about Jackie Fargo. You can see now like what this guy's got that would make people come to see him. 
And were these guys sort of like on all the time, or did they turn it on for the camera? On the whole time, at least yeah. for us, there was no doubt. They, they were. <laughs> I mean, you come in right away. Handsome Jimmy was the best. I mean, he comes in. Oh, he's like, "Oh, awesome. brother, man, come on, let me get, <laughs> let me show you around my museum." He's got this museum. He's got this. And then you get in his ring, and it's actually really amazing. This, the venue, the kind of space he's got, is awesome. But it's just, you know, he's just. All just hyper and going the whole time, exactly like his character. You know, I, I was I was eight years old, and my mother ran into Handsome Jimmy at a Memphis airport, <laughs> and she went up to him. And she goes, "You know, my son is the biggest wrestling fan, and and he would love your autograph." And Handsome Handsome goes, "Ah, it's for your son, is it?" And my mom said, "Yeah, it's for my son. <laughs> sure it is, Mama." <laughs> sure it is. <laughs> He has a ta- he, uh, he has a, a tattoo, and you feature this in the DVD extras. But Jimmy Valent has tattoos all over his body. Of course, he always did. But he's also tattooed wrestling boots to his legs. <laughs> yes, yes, he has. You see the tops of them during his interview. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's incredible. I mean, the guy's got a lot of a lot of art, but uh, the boots are, are amazing. And he like made a point to like look at my boots. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think what he said. I think he said, I'll said, die with my boots on. Yeah, um, he said like, I want to make sure I die with yeah. my wrestling boots on. Yeah. So I had these tattooed to my legs. <laughs> you know, Dave Brown told me a funny story, though. He said, he said, you'll never guess. He said, but Handsome Jimmy was the quietest guy in the dressing room. He wouldn't say a word, and he talked in a real low voice. And then once that red light on the camera came on, he would explode through that curtain yeah. and transform into Handsome. And really, and Handsome Jimmy was the first guy, you know, he's like going, yeah, Burt Reynolds and Sally Field just dropped me off. I think Burt slipped something in my Coca-Cola. You know, <laughs> I'm bouncing off the walls, baby. He was the first one to really use pop culture references uh-huh. in his interviews, you know, which uh, became wildly popular uh, a decade later. So. It's Butt Nick Monroe's another guy who I think in the, even at this age, in his interview in this movie, you can feel this guy's charisma and why he drew. And he's saying, I'm the toughest son of a bitch you ever saw and all that stuff. It's like yeah, Fargo hated him still. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Those guys could probably rematch tomorrow and both be happy to do it. But you can feel that that the personality of the guy popping off the screen. Yeah, and I will actually say um, Sputnik has, has passed away, uh, what, five years ago, something like that. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. And, uh, and yeah. so the interview we actually had, we found. It was a found interview that was performed uh-huh. Uh, for the uh-huh. Smithsonian Museum. Um, they had done a, a rock and roll exhibit in Memphis, and, and it was a piece of that they'd interviewed him, and uh, they were nice enough to let us use the footage for the film. But, yeah, it's, uh, he's he, everything you hear about him from anyone you talk to, they say the same. It's just like he was always this bigger-than-life personality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as a matter of fact, you know, you have, he, has, he has that blonde streak in his hair, mm-hmm. and my dad told me that a lot of guys in high school, my dad didn't do this, but uh, <laughs> that, that they all bleached their hair just like Sputnik, and it was like just a craze among teenagers in the city. I think one part that was a lot of fun in the film, and a lot of us, as we were watching it here today, we're, we're, we're laughing a lot out loud at sort of the section in the movie where you get into the carnival aspects of Memphis wrestling, especially the early days of it, where there were matches where guys wrestled bears. They, <laughs> they would bring in the midgets every now and then to wrestle. They would have, you know, they would had a real carnival kind of aspect to it, especially in the early days still. Yeah, well, we wanted to show the history of wrestling, so we felt like we had to set the movie up with a little bit of the real where did it come from, where, you know, how did we get to where we are kind of thing. And so that's kind of what that grew out of, and it's just funny. You know, like we, uh, you know, we we have midgets. We love, and they always say midget. They, you know, they're not PC. So that was always you just kind of had to have it in there. <laughs> Did you ever wrestle a bear, Scott? 
Uh, no, I, I wrestled several women, though. Uh, that was kind of my thing. Like, I was too gutless to actually wrestle a man, so I would wrestle women. And uh, actually, one time during a live uh, interview on, on TV, uh, this woman was getting in my face. I said, hey, if you, don't think I, if you think I'm going to hesitate to hit a woman, you just ask my girlfriend because I slap her around all the time. And I'll do the same to you, honey. And, uh, of course, uh, the telephone rings at my girlfriend's house, and her mother's on the phone. And she's like, <laughs> like, I hope you know your boyfriend just told you, told the entire city of Memphis that he beats you on a regular basis. And she's like, no, 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 that's just a character he's playing. She's like, yeah, it's a character named Scott Bowden. <laughs> <laughs> we are, unfortunately, almost out of time here, so we should get our plugs in. I, you know, I certainly want to... Um, to give a very high recommendation to anybody who would listen to this for the uh, to check out the film. And they can find out more about it, watch the trailer, and buy the DVD at memphisheatthemovie.com. Yes? Yeah, memphis-heat.com. Okay, great. Yeah. great. Great. And, um, yeah, the trailer's really cool. I mean, go on and check out the trailer if you haven't seen it yet. And, the you know, the DVD, I think, is worth having, even if you've already seen the film itself, just because, like we were saying, that you guys put so many extras on there. And uh, was that... You put a lot of the extra interview stuff on there. Was that stuff that you just thought was really juicy but didn't fit into the film? Yeah, pretty much. We talked about it, and uh, and just as Sherman specifically really wanted to push for a ton of extras because I was like, well, wait, we'll, we'll release a special edition later, you know? It's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah. <laughs> just like a wrestling So, but no, he he was like, he's like, we got to get this stuff out there. It's so good. And then and then Pritchard, our editor, really called through and just kind of collected everything. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, we wanted to make it special so that the people who are going to buy this, the fans are going to, it's going to be worth it, you yeah. know. You know, I'm really surprised you don't have a gimmick table set up out, out front. <laughs> <laughs> Selling the DVDs and the posters. I mean, come on. And Scott, uh, listeners can find out more about you at KentuckyFriedWrestling.com. It's, yeah, Wait, you, wrestling or wrestling? I have, the, either one will take you there. Yeah. <laughs> you bought them both. I bought them both. Yes. All right, very good, very good. <laughs> well, thank you, Chad, and thank you, Scott, for joining us. Fantastic stuff. Fantastic. Thank you. Really appreciate it. And thanks to everybody here in our audience. Give yourselves yeah. a round of applause. Thank you guys so much. So it was a lot of fun here today. Thanks to Second City Hollywood, everyone at the Comedy Podcast Network, Meredith Spivey, our sound engineer, Phil Ranta. You can find out more at ComedyPodcastNetwork.com. Check us out on iTunes, Curtain Jerks. Also, uh, Facebook.com slash Curtain Jerks, Twitter.com slash Curtain Jerks, and YouTube.com slash Curtain Jerks. I remember. Anything else? Uh, That's all. Google Steve Sears to find out about you, Steve. Not necessary. Please don't do it. What? <laughs> uh, for Curtain Jerks, I'm Mark Porzeka. I'm Steve Sears. I'm breaking up. And join us next time. Thanks. For more funny stuff for your eyes and ears, go to ComedyPodcastNetwork.com.